My name is Lacey Hadley. I am part of the Houghton Missional Community Group. Where is that? Represent? Okay. We'll be reading through 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prof prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if, sorry, and if I have deliver up my body to be burned and have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, you guys can have a seat. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and dismiss our school-age kids to the back. Going with Miss Lydia this morning. Nice news. Those are the new purple shirts. Yeah, nice. Um, well, welcome to Covenant Church. Uh, my name is uh, Reynolds. I'm the uh, student pastor here. And... Um, it's an awesome opportunity to get to speak this morning. Uh, we've, we sort of have wrapped up our, our study in First Peter. Uh, Jason put a bow on that last week, but for the next two weeks, we're going to be talking about kind of referencing and going back to um, uh, part of a sermon from a couple weeks ago. So we'll kind of base out of First Peter. But my question really is this. A lot of times we ask, especially with as crazy as the world seems, like what would the world be like if, right? And we, we throw in whatever biblical truth we're thinking about or praying about then. Uh, what would it be like? But, but really this morning, what I want us to start off with is the question that what if we love the way that we're commanded by Jesus? What if we love that way? And so a few weeks ago, Luke, Luke preached from, the, from 1 Peter 4, and to be honest, it was one of those sermons that Luke was up here looking at his watch, and I just really didn't, I, I just wanted him to keep going. I think the kids' workers were probably the only ones who wanted him to stop, uh, but, but that morning I was just like, man, just keep going, dude. Like, and I'm just thinking, there's like 20 sermons there, and he's trying to cram it all into uh, one hour. Um, but we want to kind of expand on that. He talked about these cultures. At the beginning that first Peter talks about, that Peter writes there, this culture of hospitality, this culture of service, culture of righteousness, a culture of prayer. And today we really want to dig in to a culture of love. And so first Peter 4.8 says this, above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And Peter says to love each other earnestly. 
And, and what Luke pointed out to us was that, that that word earnest, right? It really comes from this idea of, of loving something or doing something to the point of exhaustion, right? And that, that's an incredible, a really incredible way to think about that to the point of exhaustion. He talked about people who would, would buy a horse. We're like, is, is this horse earnest? Is he going to go all the way to the point of exhaustion? We, we even uh, have practiced putting down earnest money when we buy a house, right? Like, hey, we're, we're, we're in this. Like, we lose this money if we don't go. Like, we're all in. We're going through with this. So the idea really, right, is that Peter is encouraging us here to love this way, like to the point of exhaustion. And so I want to take some time today to look at what this kind of love looks like, the kind of love that allows us to love to the point of exhaustion. And we think about love in a lot of ways, right? And most of those ways are not necessarily bad, they're not necessarily wrong, sometimes maybe immature or misguided, but, but we're mostly well-meaning with those thoughts. So, so what does it look, what does it look like to love this way that Peter's writing here to the church about? Right? And remember that the whole idea, as we, as we go through here, this whole idea that we see through First Peter, that, that the slide we used at the beginning was, was home away from home, right? It's this idea that this is not our home. <clears throat> this is temporary. We're just passing through. And that as believers, as the church, we're called to be uncommon, to be set apart, <clears throat> to be otherworldly. Right? We're repeatedly pointed in this text in First Peter, to, to, to I kind of wrote here biblical Christianity, but if you think about it, there's really, that's the only type of Christianity that exists, right? Like we, we kind of give that qualifier, but we shouldn't really need it. But this idea of biblical Christianity, right, points us to, this, to, the, to our lives being different than the rest of the world, to us looking like aliens in a foreign land. So what is this radical love, this love that sets us apart, what does it look like? Luke used a word that day to talk about love sometimes, and he used the word flimsy. He said, too often our love has become flimsy. And sadly, even in the church, that could describe our love for one another sometimes. It just doesn't, the way we love doesn't really measure up or stand up to the way that we're called to love biblically. I want you to hear this morning that the church the people of God should be known by their love. And that's a definitive statement. I wish I could take credit for it. But in John 13, 35, Jesus says this. He says that by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, you might look around and you might say, look, Reynolds, just look. Look at this incredible community of believers that we're a part of. What a great church community we have. And my response to you would be to wholeheartedly agree with you. Right? Just as an aside right here, I want to say this. If, if you're new here, it's your first time visiting, maybe someone invited you, maybe someone tricked you into coming, whatever it is, we are thankful and grateful that you're here. And it is our hope and our prayer that you felt loved and welcome when you walk in this door. And if you've been here for a while and you're continuing to come back, I know it's because you feel that love from our people. But I would say, I would go back to this, if you told me that, I would say, yeah, you're right. We do have an incredible church community. But the truth is that lots of places have great community. They have great fellowship. You can go to a, a country club or a, a motorcycle gang or whatever, right? And there's, there's fellowship, there's community there, right? But the question really is right there is, are they known, are we known by our love to all people? Not just to those 
who act like them, who think like them, who look like them, maybe live in the same subdivision as them, maybe go to the same church as them. Does our love set us apart? Sharice went the other day to the Love Well at the Hub. Uh, we, we do a 707 tournament every summer, and, and uh, we've been able to donate the last two years uh, all or part of our, our, our money that we made there to Rise Up and Rose. I think it's a really cool deal. We've been able to do that. She, she went, and this was the week right after they came and set up out here, and, and we got to hear from, from Cassie and, um, and, and their group. So anyway, uh, the lady was talking to her, and she was like, yeah, we saw you guys at church Sunday. And she said, oh, you go to Covenant Church. And then she began to talk about Lindsay and Jamie and our church who shows up faithfully to serve every Sunday night. And it was this beautiful picture. Shree said when she walked out of there, there was this clear idea that our people love differently. And they see that, that we are set apart by the way that we love on people that don't necessarily go to our church or don't look like us or act like us or think like us. It's a love that stands out. It's a love that's different. Right? Jesus said that whatever you've done for the least, you've done for him. In Luke 14, 12 through 14, that's what Jesus said. He said, also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. So one of the marks of true love is loving those who can't repay you. It's loving those who could never repay you, right? We have lots of people that we feel like we have to love or that they have to love us, right? Maybe this, this, we feel obligated to love them. Sometimes maybe your kids have, have messed up and you said, look, I love you no matter what. And they kind of like, well, yeah, you have to love me. Or maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's your best friend for your entire life, and you just kind of feel like they have to love you. See, when I love Sharice, and I know none of y'all will believe this next statement, but she can be exhausting. Yeah, I got to go home now. Um, not as exhausting as me, but exhausting nonetheless. But church, even when I have to love her to the point of exhaustion, it's so easy to do. She's supposed to love me, and I'm supposed to love her. There's this sort of mutually beneficial relationship that we exist in. And so there's always a payoff for loving her. She's probably wondering what the payoff is for loving me in return. I don't know. But look at this. What, what, what greater debt could we owe someone than our life? And so keeping that in mind, what does that love look like? Love looks like loving to the point of exhaustion even when there's no reward even when there's no way for that person to ever pay you back. And simply put, this is what Jesus did for us on the cross. Church, he paid a debt that we could never afford. It's a debt that we'll never, no matter what we do or how we believe or how we love, we'll never be able to repay. And let me just tell you this, I'll be the first one to say this about myself, but I, I, I'll say it about confidently about everyone in here. I promise you that at times loving each and every one of us can be described as frustrating, as exhausting, because we're difficult, sinful people. Yet our heavenly father loves us anyway with a supernatural, radical, uncommon love. And so Jesus says that our love for one another marks us as Christians. 
But far too often, the world can't tell the difference in Christians and non-believers because we treat people the same way as the rest of the world. There's this absence of genuine love that unfortunately too often permeates the church. Church, if, if, if we, the believers, if those of us who have been brought from death to life for no other reason than the fact that we serve a holy God who loves us no matter what we do, if, if we can't love one another in such a radical way after that love's been shown to us, if we can't love each other in a radical way that sets us apart from the rest of the world, how can we expect the lost world to see Jesus in us? The second greatest commandment, according to Jesus, is to love others. And if our love for others is absent, or if it's just as fickle or conditional as the rest of the way that the rest of the world loves, then we're no better than them. It's, it's easy. It's too easy for us to point our little condescending fingers at others and to call them out for not loving well. All the while, what we've done is convinced ourselves that the people that we don't love well are just too difficult to love. They're just too hard to love. They're just too far gone. They don't deserve it. We convince ourselves that we do. And we don't love earnestly. Guys, I love people. I do. I enjoy being around them. It's fun for me. But there are times when I'm just done. I'm peopled out. I get frustrated with the same people and about the same conversations that would normally bring me life and energize me. I get snappy and I get short. And I always feel bad after, but it still happens. We're all going to come across people who are difficult. We're going to come across times in our lives when we just feel like it's hard to love people. Some of us reach that point far quicker than others. People can just be exhausting. It takes everything you have just to not snap their head off. Peter reminds us to love when it's exhausting. This is the love that sets us apart from the rest of the world. This is the love that Jesus showed us. Now, when we think about biblical love, right, most of us, especially my former Bible drillers, right, like we go straight to the love chapter because, you know, if you were a Bible driller, you had to learn where that was, you had to flip right to it, right? But we go to 1 Corinthians 13 where Lacey read from. It's just commonly known as the love chapter. I want to read that again, what, what Paul writes here. I'm going to read part of that. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And he talks about love. He's described, he says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And so, this idea, right? Sharice and I were at a wedding last week for one of my coaches. And one of the readings during the ceremony was, was 1 Corinthians 13. 
Now, just as I go through here, I want you to understand I'm not judging anyone because I know most of us in here probably use some form of that passage somehow, some way. It's been read at weddings forever. I'm sure it will continue to be read at, at weddings, and I'm not in any way saying that's wrong or bad. In fact, our own wedding invitations uh, were nice little cute things that folded out with little bows on there. Uh, it just said faith, hope, and love, and then when you untied it, it said the greatest of these is love. Um, if you guys didn't get an invitation, it probably got lost in the mail, or I didn't know you then, one or the other. Um, but, but here's the idea, right? This passage, as beautiful as it is, and as much as we may enjoy reading that at weddings and hearing that, right? It isn't talking about the kind of love that most of us think about, especially at weddings, right? It's not this, this eros or this, this romantic love isn't the love that Paul's writing about. Now look, don't get me wrong. Like romantic love should fall under those categories. If you, if you think you love someone, students, romantically, right? They should be patient and kind and so should you. Like all those things should apply. Romantic love is not arrogant, it's not rude. So all those things certainly apply, but that's not what Paul's writing about here. Paul is writing about agape love. Agape love is this selfless love of brothers and sisters in Christ. It's the sacrificial, unconditional love of God. And this is not just the love that we have for other believers. Like this is the love that we have for all people. See, he wasn't writing this particular passage to prepare people for marriage or to give words to some romantic feeling or idea. What he's doing is he's writing to remind a divided church about the love that unites them and to remind them that there was and that there is still today for us a better way to live. One author put it this way, the love chapter is not for lovers primarily, but for all the loveless people in the church who think that their way of talking about God or worshiping God or serving God or giving to God is better than everyone else's. Jonathan Edwards says that love is the virtue more insisted on in the New Testament than any other virtue we see. And so Paul takes some things here that we just read that seem to be the, the cause, the source of some division, right, these, these spiritual gifts, and he uses them to show the church at, at, at Corinth the absolute necessity of love. See, speaking in tongues of men means that you would have the gift of utterance, right? To be able to communicate spiritual truths through human language. Tongues of angels, I think, would be an even greater gift, right? You could speak the very language of heaven. And without minimizing these gifts, Paul simply says, if you can do these things, but you don't have love, nothing more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And I'm not a musician, right, at all. I want to be, but I'm not. Jason and I have auditioned for the band several times, and Rachel keeps kicking us out. Um, but if you took a gong, remember the gong show? Like, that's even probably before me, but, like, I've seen reruns. Like, they used that gong, this loud, terrible, awful noise, did nothing but tell you, hey, you stink, get off the stage. That's what he's saying, a cymbal. Like, if we just, I, I can't play the drums, but if he came up here just banged on the cymbals the whole time, I don't think that's very good music. It's just a racket. It's a loud, loud racket. It would probably be a deafening sound to all of us. Church, others, the lost world can't hear the gospel from a loveless Christian. 
See, prophetic powers means you can tell the future or possibly have supernatural insight to interpret what's happening in the world from God's point of view, but it's no good without love. And what he says next blew me away. If you have the ability to understand all mysteries, if you have all knowledge, I think about that. There's nothing you couldn't figure out. There's nothing that's beyond your understanding. There's no knowledge that you lack. But you don't love, you have nothing. And you are nothing. It's very clear that if you have faith, that will move a mountain. You can literally tell a mountain to move from one place to the other. And it moves, but you don't have love. You're nothing. You can be the most generous person in the entire world and give away everything that you have. You can martyr yourself, literally give up your life. But if you don't have love, Paul says, you've gained nothing. So what's he saying here? I think clearly Paul is agreeing with Jesus that the most important commands are to love in a supernatural, otherworldly, radical, uncommon way. This is the foundation for everything else that we do in the Christian life. If our gifts and our acts of service don't flow from love, they are nothing. They're meaningless. They have no value, no worth. It's only when we live in and when we live from a culture of agape love that we can love like Christ. If we have deep insights to, to who God is, we have tons of, uh, of theological seminary training, a bunch of degrees, they're nothing without love. You just know a bunch of stuff about God, but you're not loving like God. And we could go on forever with this passage. We spent about the entire year last year, once or twice a month on Wednesday nights, teaching from this for our students. So students, if you've heard some of this, good. I'm glad you were listening. It rings a bell. But I want to talk about two things really here. I want to focus on two things today that love does not do. I think it gives us a, a better grasp to understanding what biblical love is and what, what, what Peter's writing here to love earnestly and what Paul's writing here in 1 Corinthians. So we're going to talk about two things. One, that love does not insist <clears throat> on its own way. And then uh, as the CSB translation reads, it says that love does not keep a record of wrongs. <clears throat> so first, love does not insist on its own way. That's hard for me to even say. It just is because so much of what I do requires me to make decisions. A lot of it requires me to be the final decision maker and for most of my life, I've been in some sort of leadership role. But I absolutely hate looking back and seeing how little I cared about others when I was leading so poorly. It hasn't stopped happening now necessarily. It's even more disturbing now when I see it happen. Just the other day, I sent an email that was not intended to be bad at all. But I just replied to a group with my opinion and no regard for how it sounded to anyone else. I was just insisting on my own way. And there have been countless times in my life when I've insisted on my own way. And it might have been the people I was close to. Maybe it was classmates, it was teammates, coworkers, my family. But I know that I didn't have a very loving posture when I acted that way. And make no mistakes, I'm sure there are still times when I'm insisting on doing things the way I want to. I think this is why I'm so sensitive when, so, so all three of my kids, right, have a little bit of my 
personality and uh, God bless them, but uh, Caroline got the most of this this sort of insisting on her own way, and I feel bad because anytime she shows any signs of that, I'm immediately like, don't do that. People don't like that. It took me 30-something years to figure it out. You do it sooner, and she has. She has. She's done well, but in arguments, I can clearly remember being insistent always that I was right. Some of you in here are like, yeah, yeah, that's right. Uh, I used to change the rules and kickball with my cousins at my grandparents' house uh, <laughs> to fit what I wanted. Uh, and I wouldn't, here, here's, here's the, the crazy thing. Even when I wasn't sure I was right, sometimes when I knew I was wrong or likely was wrong, I still insisted on my way. Like I, I tried to take others' beliefs and conform them to mine. I tried to bend their will to mine. So our students have heard this, but, uh, <laughs> and I caught some grief for it. But in addition to, to, to being a, a terrible person, obviously, and insisting on my way all the time, I'm a little, maybe a lot OCD. And so here's the deal. Uh, when I eat a cheeseburger, okay, there's usually a part of that cheeseburger where the cheese is melted perfectly on the, you know what I'm talking about? It's, it's the side they use for the advertisement. I will take a cheeseburger and I will hold that joker by the cheese that's melted perfectly and eat around it so that my last bite is the best bite. Yep. <laughs> if I eat a roll of sweet tarts, I will take the red and the yellow and pull them out and put them back in there and eat the other crappy ones because I don't, I don't, I, I like the red and the yellow best, so I want those to be saved for last. But one of the stranger things I do is I pick out the best cookie. You guys remember this, students, right? Uh, just, just hold in for a second. <laughs> I know it sounds crazy. When we first got married, and, and we still do now, son, we would take this, the, buy these pre-made rolls of cookie dough. And we would make cookies a lot, right? It was just the two of us. And Sharice would put them in the oven or I would or whatever. We'd get a plate of cookies come out and she would, you know, bring them out there and have some, some milk. And uh, I would take a cookie and I would place it on my plate. Not weird. Then I would get a second cookie and I would place it on my plate. <laughs> and then I would start eating the cookies from the plate. And one day Sharice finally said, like, what are you doing? Like, I, I don't understand, right? If you haven't figured out my... My pattern yet I was taking the best cookie and I was saving it for last and I took it off the plate that was for both of us so that she would not eat the best cookie right and then I took the second best cookie and I saved it for next to last right I, I know I'm a, I'm a weird terrible person guys I'm sorry but here's the deal crazy thing is she apparently didn't find it weird I guess she she already knew about my cheeseburger habit and my, my my sweet tart issues so I guess she didn't think it was that crazy but what happened next was was kind of weird I took the first cookie off the plate, and before I could grab the second one, she took a cookie and put it on her plate. Not a problem, except that was the next best cookie, <laughs> right? And so I looked at her, and I said, what are you doing? And she's like, well, I'm saving, like, I'm saving that one for last. And I was like, but that's the one I was going to get, right? And, and uh, I was a little, you know, a little frustrated, a little perturbed, right? Um, here's the deal. Like, she said, you got the, the one you wanted, and I took second choice, right? But I was still upset that she would have the audacity to take the second one, right? That she wouldn't give me that one. And she just said, look, I've got, if you want to play this game, I'll play it, but I get to play. You're not playing by yourself, right? I'm going to take the cookies that I want. There was no big fight, but I, would, I promise you I was more than a little frustrated. We worked it out, and I've learned to share the second cookie eventually, right? 
uh, after I taught this in, on Wednesday night, a few, maybe the next night, night later, we had made cookies, and I sent a picture out with the cookies number to our student group, and I was like, all right, which one should I take first? And it's amazing what people believe, you know, some of you guys are, you know, there's no chocolate chips in these things, and you guys are like, that's the best one. I don't understand. Um, but anyway, that's a crazy example, right, of me being selfish and self-serving. It's also a perfect example of, of, of me not acting in a very loving way. Um, David Garland says this, each thing that love does is something in which ego does not dominate. But each thing that love does not do, like insist on its own way, is something in which the ego does dominate. And that makes so much sense to me, right? To be patient and kind, to bear hope and endure all things, we would have to set aside our ego. But to be rude or arrogant, to insist on our own way, to boast, to be envious, right? We would just have to simply do what comes natural to us and what's easy to us and just let our ego take over. See, to insist is to demand something forcefully, not accepting any refusal. So when I say, so when to demand something forcefully sounds more criminal than loving to me. Let's look at what Jesus himself says about this in Matthew 26 on the night that he would be arrested. They've eaten together, and now Jesus wants to go away, and he wants to be with the Father to pray. In Matthew 26, 36 to 39, it says, Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face, and he prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And what we really want to see here is Jesus' mindset, right? What's he really asking the father for? See, he's coming closer and closer to this moment that he's known is coming. He's known all along from the beginning of time for eternity. He's known this moment is coming. But now, remember, he's 100% human and 100% God. In his humanity, he's feeling the weight of what's coming. In his spirit, he's feeling the weight of the sin he's about to take on. It's laying heavy on him. He's literally crying tears of blood. He's so far beyond distraught that we can't even imagine. And so he turns to the Father, right? He goes to the Father, he goes away, and he prays. And he says, Father, if there is any other way, Let's do it that way. He says, Father, I, I know this has been the plan all along. I, I know what we talked about, but this just seems so terrible right now. So if there's another way, let's do that. Yet having said that, he follows it up. He says, I don't want to do what I want, though. I want to do what you want. I want whatever is your will. He's essentially saying, just have your own way, Lord. There's an old hymn we sang when I was little. I want you to listen to the words of the lyrics. It says, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. Mold me, I'm trying hard not, not, not to break out in song here. Mold me and make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Search me and try me, master, today. Whiter than snow, Lord, wash me just now. And in thy presence, humbly I bow. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Hold over my being, absolute sway. 
filled with thy spirit till all I can see Christ only always living in me. See, Jesus only wanted what the Father wanted. He was yielded to the Father's will, no matter what it meant for him. Remember how Paul described it in Philippians 2. He says that Jesus was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This doesn't sound like the description to me of someone who was insisting on his own way. And we can even see it when he taught us to pray. He teaches this way. He says, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done. What if we prayed like that? I mean, it's embarrassing how many times I just jump right into what I want. And I just justify it by, by well, I'm praying for other people. I'm bringing their needs to God. I, I don't even consider what God might want. Just what I want, what, what, what we need, God. What if we just submitted to him? What if we just said, Father, your kingdom come. Your will be done all the time. I guess far too often, I'm just not very loving because love doesn't insist on its own way. Love also keeps no record of wrongs. Think about the quote I read you earlier about ego. See, keeping a record of wrongs, holding a, a grudge is something directly tied to our ego. See, we have to be just arrogant enough to act like we haven't wronged anyone. We haven't committed any sort of injustices. Or maybe we just forget or ignore those things when it's us doing the wrongdoing and we just rather play the victim card. And you know, sometimes I can get frustrated. I can hold grudges. I resent people when they don't do what I think they should. When someone's wronged me, or especially if they've wronged my family or my friends, I can hold on to this resentment and it never turns out well for me. We're human and it's hard to let things go sometimes, even when we know that that's what we're supposed to do, when it's what Jesus has called us to do. Too many times we tell people, I'll forgive you, but I won't forget. Yet, yet we're commanded, right? We're commanded to not hold on to those wrongdoings. A few years back, been about five or six years ago, uh, I had someone who caused me and my family probably more hurt than we've ever experienced. It's a tough time, and I think even in some ways now, some of our family's still hurting and still working through that. I wanted to hold on to it. I wanted to talk about this guy who had hurt us, and I did. Now, it doesn't really matter that it wasn't in public. It was to our closest friends uh, who had experienced some of that hurt too. Uh, it still wasn't right, but, but uh, I really wanted to just make a big deal about it publicly. I didn't. I allowed the hurt that had been perpetrated against me, right, to affect my reaction to that hurt. I allowed it to kind of set in motion some of my subsequent actions. I felt like I was just spinning in a lot of ways. Now, this happened to be about the time we were coming to Covenant Church, and uh, it was during the fall, so I was practicing football, and I was meeting with Luke every week, one day after practice, and probably I, I was talking through this and, you know, Luke's an incredible listener, and he was just being so, so, he was being very patient, and very kind, all the things that love should be, and he was listening. And about our third or fourth meeting in there, he said something to me that really changed how I handled the hurt. And look, it's not groundbreaking, but it wasn't just life-changing for me. I want you to hear when I say this, it was life-giving for me. And it was one of the most loving things that everyone's ever said to me. Luke looked at me, and he said, hey, that's great. He said, look, you realize that one day, you're going to have to forgive him, right? 
And it seems so simple, yet it was so immediately impactful to me. It was this loving reminder that we're commanded to forgive. See, for the, for, for, for the Christian, forgiveness is not optional. There are no exceptions. And as we talk more, I begin to, to kind of allude to this idea, well, yeah, I've got I've to forgive a lot, right? We see in, in Matthew 18, Peter says, Lord, how often my brother sinned against me, like I got, and I should forgive him what, like seven times? And Jesus is like, no, 77 times. Right now, I've been in church long enough to know that Jesus is not telling us to just get one of those little clicker counter things and like when we hit 77, boom, now I can hold a grudge, right? That's not how that works. Um, it's Jesus's way of reminding us that we're called to forgive, period. As I talk through this, Luke and I were having a conversation. I just remember realizing I really didn't fully grasp what that passage was saying. I was thinking, you know, kind of in some ways, I was kind of like, well, he's got 76 more times and then I'm done, right? And I was also thinking, well, you know, probably not going to sin against me 76 more times. Um, and then Luke, once again, just so lovingly pointed out that on my own, right, I would have a hard time forgiving and forgetting, just letting go of this. On my own, I promise you, on my own, I'm keeping a record. I got the receipts, right? Um, so <laughs> he said that um, if I were going to, uh, if for this healing, if I needed that healing, this ability to forgive and to erase this record, this wrong that had been done to me and my family, I would need God to supernaturally do it. And let me just, in case I forget to say this later, I want to tell you, like, that may be something that, 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 that God convicts you of today. It doesn't mean that God's going to supernaturally heal that today. It's going to be something that you have to keep bringing back to him. He pointed out the command to forgive over and over again, just like Jesus does with us, meant that I would have to forgive this man countless times over for the same sin. He said, every time you see him, every time you think about him or what was done to you, just remind yourself that you're commanded to forgive and you've chosen to be obedient. It's a game changer. It's life altering, life giving. It's a reminder of the heart of Jesus from the heart of a friend. And listen to me, for three or four years, a long time, every time I thought about this man, Every time I saw him, I had to remind myself that I had chosen to forgive him. And that's not what my flesh wanted, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in me. I desperately, not only did I want to be obedient, I had to get rid of this heaviness that was holding me down. It was holding me back. It was affecting me. And honestly, just selfishly, I wanted some relief from that. I needed God to step in and take over for my inability to let it go. Every time I drove by his office, sometimes intentionally, I prayed for him. And I would love to tell you that you can't be mad at somebody while you're praying for him, but I can tell you from personal experience, that would be a lie. It was tough, but then it happened. About a year and a half ago, I ran to this man at the funeral. We were in a church and I, I, was, I was walking out of the bathroom and he was walking towards me. And it was just me and him. There's no way around it, like, this is it. So I spoke to him and it was awkward. There was this sort of uh, like handshake, like, like a bro, but we're not bros type hug, you know? 
and I walked away and I wasn't angry. God had supernaturally allowed me to move on. I felt like I no longer had a record of the wrong he had done to me. And I texted our family text, the five of us, because we were all hurting. And, and I went and looked this up. I pulled it back up on my text. And I wanted to read to you what I sent them. And obviously, I take his name out. But says, I walked into the church for the funeral and ran into blank, just me and him. I smiled and laughed and told him he was wasting away, losing all that weight. He said he was trying. We shook hands and hugged. I didn't feel any animosity. Now close it out with this. The Lord is gracious and good. Church, the Lord is gracious and good. God loves us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. And we've sinned against him so many in so many unthinkable, so many seemingly unforgivable ways. Yet he loves us. You know, we all have those family members that we feel like we love only because we have to. This is not the way that God loves us. In Psalm 103, 12, it says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. He removes them from us, and he removes them from his mind. He forgives us, and he holds no grudges. And this is how he calls us to love. Church, if you struggle to pray for and to love your enemy like we're called to do, I've got the solution for you today. You don't have to do it anymore. Stop holding grudges. Don't keep any more records of wrongdoing. See, I feel like if you don't hold people's sins against them, it'd be really hard for you to call anyone an enemy. So you never have to pray for your enemies again. Just stop holding grudges. And it won't be easy. You're going to have to have the Holy Spirit at work in you. You're going to have to be obedient. You can't insist on doing it your way. So how can we live in a culture from love? Really just a couple things here. First, you can't go at it alone. See, Jason reminded us last week that no one walks towards holiness alone, right? In the email I mentioned earlier, I sent, right, without any regard for anyone else, my new boss and close friend immediately shot me a text that just said, you need to work on your delivery. You just shot down an idea because it's not what you want. And the you was in all caps. It was less ouch and more, dang, I never meant for it to come out that way. But as she explained, I know you, I know what you mean, but I don't think everyone else will take it that way. So I immediately sent a follow-up email apologizing and better, trying to better explain my thoughts in a much more loving way than I had the first time. As I just told you, it was the loving and pointed words of my friend Luke who reminded me that biblical love caused me to forgive and to forget. Caused me to let go and wipe clean all the wrongs others have done to me. And I don't know if I would have been able to do that in either situation. I don't think I would have navigated that well without friends who love me and care for me and want me to love well. So you can't go out of the alone. Secondly, I think you've got to set the stage. You've got to set the stage. And here's what I mean. Morning and night, you've got to set the stage. You've got to choose every single day that you're going to submit to God's will for your life. I would encourage you every morning when you wake up, maybe you're 
say, you know, you can, you can gurgle it out while you're brushing your teeth or whatever. Say it with your spouse, say it with your parents, say it with your, with your kids, whatever it may be. Not my will, but yours. There is power in voicing that out loud, this commitment. Not my will, but yours. Remember, he gave his life for ours. We give our will for his. And then I would follow this up with a sort of cleaning the slate each and every night. See, too often we get caught up and we look back and we go, oh, I didn't forgive this person. I've been holding on to this. And we, it just weights us down. And those are good things. But I would encourage you that each and every night to pray out loud, to, to, to voice out loud. Again, maybe it's with a spouse. Maybe it's with your whole family. But voice it out loud. Voice out loud your forgiveness for the people who've wronged you that day. Commit to wiping that slate clean every single, maybe you got cut off in traffic and you didn't handle it well. Maybe you don't know who it is, doesn't matter. Forgive them, wipe it clean. Maybe you've been betrayed by a close friend. Maybe it's deeper than any of this. Maybe it's, it's, it's your, your, your parents have hurt you. Maybe your adult children have hurt you. Whatever it is, forgive and forget. Wipe it clean. As I'm closing, I'm going to invite the band back up. I want to ask you this. How many times have we thought about what the world would look like if we could just do X, Y, and Z? That's what I asked you when we started. Seriously, what would our world look like if the church loved radically? I'm going to tell you a story. Heather Deloach sent me a podcast a couple weeks ago. The guy named David Nasser. So it's a Dadville podcast. They were interviewing David Nasser. And David Nasser was the campus pastor at Liberty University for a long time. Uh, he is uh, uh, Iranian. I want to say Iranian, but Caroline would have mad. It's, it's Iran, apparently. Iranian. And his family came over when he and his siblings were very, very young. Um, and they really escaped. Like they call, if you listen to the story, it's incredible. He was called up to the front of his school uh, when the new regime took over. And they were literally going to execute him in front of the entire school. The principal talked him out of it. Um, and then they were to execute his dad. Through his dad's kindness, he has shown to someone else. They ended up letting him, letting him go. Said, hey, we're coming back in two weeks for you. Basically telling his dad, like, you might want to get him out of here. So they fled to, I believe, Germany or somewhere and then ended up in the United States here. And uh, he tells this story of, of, of graduating high school and being a real loser. You know, like, other people were going to college. I had like a 1.8 GPA. He's like, I wasn't going anywhere. So me and my buddy were hanging out. And he tells this story. He says, one night, one Saturday night, they had they were, they'd been at a party and they were like, oh, man, everybody's, everybody's leaving, going to college. We don't, we don't really have those friends. Like, we're not going to college. Like, let's go hang out with some of the other high school kids. So David looks at him, he's like, hey, we, we don't want to hang out with the juniors, man. Like, we can't do that. That's, that's pretty lame. And so, I'm not talking. anyway, he says, uh, he says, we're not hanging out with them. He said, we're, 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 we're too cool for that. He said, I tell you what, he said, uh, he said, now, by the way, they're sitting in a car uh, uh, smoking a joint outside of his house, waiting to go in at curfew. And he's like, this guy invites me to church as he hands me the joint. He's like, I, I, there's some great, some funny stuff in there. It's a great story. I would encourage you to listen to it. But he says, let's go to church tomorrow. Come to church with me. And he says, well, you go to church? He goes, yeah, I go to church sometimes. But a lot of our friends go to church there. So we'll be able to see them. It's a way to connect with them. And he says, my dad will never let me go. 
His dad was, he said his dad was Muslim when it was convenient. And so those were times he'd say, no, you can't go to church. He's like, just go ask him. Oh, fine. He says, so I want to shut my friend up. So I go in and I ask, he said, I go to the hallway and I my, knock on my parents' door. Hey, I'm home. I'm here. Hey, uh, my friend said, could you just, he asked me to go to church. Can you just tell me no loud enough so he will hear me and leave me alone? And he said, his, his dad says, well, what is the name of the church? And he says, this friend hears him and he yells, Shades, Shades, and Shades Mountain Baptist Church down the street. And his dad had opened a restaurant and he said, unbeknownst to me, he said, the worship leader and a few people from that church had gone to eat at my dad's restaurant two weeks before this. And he said, my dad was short-staffed short and service was terrible. But this worship leader and the people from the church, instead of complaining about the service, they got up and they went to work and they helped his dad. And they came back the next day and they helped his dad. And the next day, and then he said they did a crazy thing. They invited my dad to choir practice. He said my dad went, and when he got there, he saw a sign-up sheet. And they had all signed up to take shifts to help his dad at the restaurant. He said, so his dad looked at him. He says, I know those people. You can go to church there. Now, this man's a campus pastor at Liberty. You can, you can see where the story leads him eight, nine, ten weeks later where he comes to faith. His mom comes to faith. His sister comes to faith. But he said, that worship leader led with a dish towel. He said, the reason I can tell you this story today is because the church showed up and was the church. So church, my encouragement for us today is to love in a radical, selfless, otherworldly way. Don't insist on your own way. Let go of those wrongs that have been done to you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that although I have been, I have sinned against you over and over again, terrible, unthinkable ways. God, you just take them and you remove them from me and from your mind as far as the east is from the west. And God, for all who will put their faith in you, you're willing to do that. What an incredible incredible thing God would you humble our hearts so that we can forgive easily without condition so that we can wipe clean any wrongs that are committed to us Father thank you for sending your son to show us exactly what this radical love looks like what this selfless unconditional agape love looks like Father, would we show up as the church? Not as a denomination, not as a religion, but as sons and daughters of the one true king. Would we love and lead the way that you've asked us to? Father, for those in here right now who may not know you, God, I pray that you would, you would lead them to your unconditional love. Would you give them eyes to see and ears to hear right now? Father, for those of us who are walking with you, God, would you sanctify us with your love? Would you continue to grow us in that way? Father, we're thankful for you. 
for the way you've shown us love and you continue to show us love. It's your name we pray. Amen. Church, in a second, Rachel's going to play. We've got communion stations set up. The corner's right here.